Hello, friends. We are back of episode 96 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. My name is Eric Nance, and boy, it's October already, and boy, a lot of things are happening in the community, but I can't even begin to talk about any of that without my supremely awesome co-host, Mike Thomas. Mike, how are you doing this fine day? I'm doing great. It is busy out there in the community. Get your our studio uh, tables contest submissions in while you can. Oh, yeah. Very hot, hot area there. Table submissions across many different sectors of the community. So definitely looking forward to that. Um, I dare say you might be getting on that game, too, if you get time, hopefully. <laughs> I was helping someone review their submission yesterday. So maybe that counts, but I'm not sure. I- I'm going to try, but I'm not sure if I'm going to make it there. I think we have till November. We do have till November. So you okay. got time, but uh, I know how fast. The- I know how the hustle goes. I got a couple things on my play at the moment, yeah. so maybe I'll get some in. Who knows? But, uh, but yeah, so we're going to get it in. We got some great highlights to talk about today. And the curator this week is, oh, him again. Oh, yeah, it's me. Ha ha. Yeah, pulling double duty again. This is a fun, fun issue to curate. Lots of great content. The highlights went down to the wire, literally, but we, we got a great selection here, so... As always, I can never do any of this without the tremendous help from my fellow curators who have made the infrastructure so much nicer than when this whole thing started. So I was able to quickly assemble all those links, get them in the highlights poll, and we're here. And of course, from all of you around the world with your contributions via poll requests and everything else. So let's dive right into it, shall we? Now, as we think about the abundance of available data at our fingertips, no matter what industry you support or what area you support, what gets a lot of attention or press in the community of data science is the development of new techniques and new tooling to handle those data and perform predictions and other modeling. Obviously, the AI and ML community say hi. We've seen a whole bunch of tooling on those side of things. But that's just one small domain, one small example of the focus being dictated on the data itself and, of course, the analytics. But in the real world, the results of those analytics are going somewhere, right? It could be just yourself if you want to answer a question on your own, or it could be to a key stakeholder or colleague in your organization. Now, our first highlight is going to bring us a very insightful blend of both design thinking and statistical analysis to produce a set of observable data analysis design principles that can go a long way into making sure both the person performing the analysis and the consumer are going to be hopefully satisfied with the work. And the authors of the paper we're going to be talking about are certainly leading experts in this field. We've got Lucy D'Agostino McGowan, who is an assistant professor at Wake Forest University, and a co-host of, yes, another podcast called the Causal Inference Podcast. We also have Roger Pang, professor of statistics and data sciences at the University of Texas, and the co-host of a one you may have heard of, Not So Standard Deviations. And lastly, but certainly not least, Stephanie Hicks, associate professor at the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Health. So research amongst these three have at this topic have gone all the way back to 2019. We'll have a link in the supplement of this episode to a preprint 
that was a great way to source some initial feedback from the community on these ideas. And at a high level, what the authors have outlined here are about six principles for bringing in design thinking into your data analysis strategy and the takeaways in terms of how an analyst, both the producer and perhaps even the consumer of these, can weigh these from project to project and the variation we often see in this. So for me, what I see is that these principles can lead us to a direction of understanding the different dimensions we likely have thought about subconsciously as we perform these analyses. But the paper is giving us a really clear guidance into just how these relate to each other, but also how we can think about these prospectively as we begin to scope out this work. Now, the paper does discuss six of these. I won't give all of them here, but certainly as I read through this, there are a couple that definitely come to my mind as I think about my daily work. And Mike, I'll be curious how this, how this relates to your work as well. But the combination of exhaustive, meaning that you're using multiple methods or tools to design your analysis, but also clarity, finding the best, most impactful, clearest either visualization or tabular or summary to really communicate what is the main insight you want to generate from that data analysis. I see this all the time where I'm assessing maybe the benefits and trade-offs of an experiment design and also maybe analysis techniques that we can throw at a problem like multiplicity. I need to put both of these principles at a higher priority, so to speak, so that both myself and my customers, they may be leaders of a product team, or they may also be key stakeholders or executives in the company, so that they are equally confident, along with me, on the findings, and we have enough information to make a key decision. But I acknowledge that that may not be always the two you prioritize. That's why the other principles cover everything from the available data to just how in-depth the supplement analyses go, so to speak. But the nice, interesting part of the paper as well is that it wouldn't be in a paper about analysis if there wasn't an analysis of itself where the authors explored both the between and within variation among students that are enrolled in various statistics and data science courses and how they scored the adherence of these six principles on the analyses that they were retrospectively looking at. And not surprisingly, we see quite a bit of variation across the students and how they view how the principles were applied. And perhaps a bunch of underlying factors could be at play here that warrant future studies in terms of say the backgrounds that we bring to a data analysis project, maybe previous trainings we've had, or maybe our interactions with cross-functional colleagues. There could be all sorts of things that influence the way we prioritize these different principles. But overall, a very insightful topic. And of course, there is a little bit of R thrown in there because the students were using R to do some assignments of these data analyses. So very cool stuff there. But certainly a very well-written paper. As I said, it's been about three years in the making. And you can definitely show with the breadth and the very clear and concise ways that the authors summarize these principles. And hopefully it leads to even more awareness in the community 
on finding a ways to take advantage of these to make our analyses even better. So of course, links in the show notes, along with a preprint and some also some great threads from Stephanie on outlining this back in 2019 on Twitter as well. So definitely check those out. But Mike, how did you relate to these uh, principles that you saw here? It was interesting. It was really thought provoking for me as someone who I guess sometimes gets bogged down doing the day-to-day work and not spending enough time actually actively stepping aside and, and thinking about some of these design principles and maybe even formally articulating them somewhere. But the, you know, the cool thing about this, this blog post was uh, in this paper, I should say in the highlights is that it's, it's such a meta analysis using data analysis to, to learn how we do data analysis. Um, but like you said, what a high powered group of authors on this paper. It does remind me of uh, another podcast called Designing for Analytics that I like by Brian O'Neill. So if you're a big fan of design thinking, um, definitely check that one out. And, and I truly believe that that design thinking, even though sometimes, like I said, I don't actively formally think about it as much as I should, I do think it's the most important skill set uh, for a data science manager in particular. So if, if you're in a management role um, as sort of that last stop of the person who's uh, between your analysts and, and the folks who are on the other side of that analysis, I think it's it's really important, as well as, as being the person who's sort of architecting that analysis in the first place and the choices and the assumptions that you're going to make. Um, Likely, you know, my choices have probably evolved over time, maybe as yours have, Eric, and I would imagine that they'll continue to evolve. Reading through these these different design principles, I think I pretty much always use a blend in my day-to-day work. And that blend is is sometimes weighted based upon weighted differently based upon what I know about my audience. And I think the initial conversations and, and problem framing with my clients uh, really sort of lead to which design principles I'm going to pull in uh, more heavily or or less heavily on that particular project. Um, It it all ties together. I mean, the importance of data matching, which is is something that the paper kind of leads off with, that cannot be underestimated and ensuring that you have the right data available to solve the problem that's at hand. You don't want what I think Cassie Kiskaroff calls type three error, which is doing a great job solving the wrong problem. Uh, it's I've seen it happen so many times. It's happened to me in the past. Um, I remember that there's also a paper called Many Analysts, One Dataset. Have you ever read that one, Eric? Oh, no, I have not. So I believe it was a, a pretty formal paper that was a study of a bunch of data science teams who were pretty experienced teams who were all trying to tackle the same problem. Um, and it was to determine within this data set of players, soccer players, football, for those of you east of the US um, or, or west of the US, I think the US is the only one that calls it soccer. <laughs> we're strange so, like that here. Yep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, the, the paper, they were, gave the uh, teams a data set of soccer players and the uh, cards given out to them, red cards or yellow cards for infractions um, given out by referees to try to see if there was bias uh, against players of color. So a lot of models were built and uh, a lot of teams built very different types of models to, uh, to, to 
address this problem and, and to try to solve this problem and try to answer that question whether or not um, there, there's some bias at play and wildly different uh, outcomes in, in what they thought. And when they went to review each other's papers and had outside reviewers coming in, uh, all of their methodologies were, were pretty sound, but they did get very different answers. And it was, it's, it's, it's a very, very interesting paper that I would recommend uh, you read. And, and it sort of, you know, maybe uh, perverts the idea of, of lies, damn lies and statistics where, where that came from. But the, the more I practice data science, the more I can kind of empathize with that, especially if you're trying to do anything predictive. I just remember in, in undergrad and grad, a lot of curriculum is really just jamming the data into a model. But the, the more you do predictive modeling specifically, I think the more you uh, more you understand that like the statistical stars have to align in your data to be able to do a solid analysis. And then on top of that, you'll probably have to identify and articulate a bunch of assumptions that you had to make along the way as well. And if you're not doing that, you, you probably sh should have. So, so my takeaway from this is if I am, you know, in somebody in the audience's shoes as a data scientist, day to day, maybe not thinking as much about design thinking as uh, I, I should, have a conversation with, with your manager on what their preferences are. Do they prefer to see an exhaustive analysis or a skeptical analysis? Um, and work through that together. And that might be on a project by project basis, or there might be sort of a, a mindset um, for design principles that your organization uh, could benefit from better than others. You've nailed something there. It's the communication early and often with your most likely customers or collaborators on this analysis. That is not something I was taught in school when I learned statistics. So having this, this awareness and bringing this out in the open I'm hopeful that alongside those of us within the trenches of industry are able to take on this as we work with different teams, even within our same org, that as we're teaching the next generation of statisticians and data scientists, that these principles will become much more in focus. So I'm, I think this is the first step in that message being sent, but that communication aspect can save a lot of heartache, especially for you, the analysis producer, if you did this tremendous work and then that that executive or whoever that collaborator is just comes back and said, oh, yeah, that's nice, but that's not what I was looking for. Ooh, those are the worst. Those are just the worst. So <laughs> don't put yourself in that situation. Get that clear up front, but it's a it's got a nice synergy to a lot of these principles we outline. Because I can tell you, I have one team, some team members that you give them a, a great visualization, they're going to probably be agreeing with you almost 100% of the time. Whereas other times they want, wait, you did that regression? No, no, no. What about the non-parametric? What about this one, this one, this one? That's when you got you to gotta be exhaustive to, to hit those points too. So not one size fits all, but this is going a long way to helping, you know, being put up front where it's most important in each project. So really, really good paper here. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, for, for those of you, I think as data scientists, sometimes inappropriately, we can be looked at like the, the wizard in the cave that has all the answers up on the mountaintop. And I, I think with great power sort of comes great responsibility sometimes. So um, if you are in that sort of position within your organization, I've been there as one of the only data scientists within a company who, who was sort of looked at that way. Um, just make sure that you are 
being empathetic about the the folks who are going to receive your analysis and all of the the caveats that there that there may be. Yep, they're very well said, and yeah, the the design principles here can go, like I said, a long way into maybe untangling these different uh, forces at play. And speaking of untangling. Oh, you did not. I did too. You know, I've done this a little bit. So we're going to transition with that principle as we think about back to some of the day-to-day data analysis that we do, especially on the coding side, ever since that that little pipe operator from the greeter came to fruition. And when the tidyverse started adopting that and putting in their opinionated, you know, take on data analysis, many of those exploratory looks at data are heavily leveraging the concept of chaining or piping these data processing steps together. There are many benefits to this, and I, albeit this could be subjective, but I see one that I see is the improvement of readability as you think of both yourself constructing the analysis, but also as you get perhaps collaborators or reviewers of your code to understand just what are you trying to accomplish in that pipeline. But things start to get a little crazy when you start drafting these really maybe intricate, might say long pipelines. And there's just one subtle or maybe a not so subtle mistake or error that can bring immense chaos and it goes crashing down. You're trying to figure out what step did what? I've been there before. No judgment. We've all suffered from it. But if you've ever wanted a way to explore just what is actually happening in your pipeline, in a visual way, because many of us definitely resonate with that more visual component to it, and not just through manually highlighting certain sections of that pipeline, running it and trying to save intermediate objects out. Boy, this second highlight is definitely for you. So, Mike, have you been in this situation before? And how does this second highlight get us maybe to a clear state? Yes, I have. And I think the way that this highlight sort of spoke to me the most is is really through trying to articulate the steps that I took, especially in like an ETL pipeline to somebody else who may not be maybe non-technical as well. And to try to help them visualize and understand the aggregations and filtering and selection and the order ordering that, that and sorting that, that took place and sort of what order that all came through. So lucky for us, now we have a package called Unravel an R package. It's a Fluent Code Explorer for R. On installation, it comes with this beautiful add-in in your RStudio IDE, which I think is, is probably the easiest way to spin it up. And it allows you to highlight a section of piped code, you know, sort of your, your recipe of steps um, that you have using the Magritte pipe. I don't know, does it do the, uh, the, the base pipe as well? Or is it just Magritte at this point in time? You might have to try that out and find out. Who knows? It's just Magritte in the docs that I'm seeing on GitHub right now. But we'll have to try it out and see if it works with the base pipe as well. So it allows you to unravel. That's the package name. Dplyr or tidyr code. And once you highlight this code and click on the add-in button that says unravel, it opens up a Shiny app in your RStudio viewer panel, which allows you to toggle certain steps on and off in that pipeline, 
allows you to reorder in a really incredible drag and drop interface, steps in that pipeline, and then view in a table, a small data frame of the output underneath that. So you can change the order of steps. You can remove, take away some of those steps in your pipeline and see how the data changes. And it's it's phenomenally powerful GUI tool that we have um, now at our fingertips. I think there are some tangential tools um, that try to solve similar problems as well. I think there's one called TidyLog. I've heard of Breaker of Chains before. It's an RStudio and VS Code add-in. Um, Datamations is another one as well. And uh, the, the author has a few related tools in the GitHub repo, which is linked uh, in, the, in the highlights. But Eric, what were your thoughts after taking a look at this tool? Why didn't I know about this a year ago? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I remember debugging some very intricate pipelines in our Shiny app for a very high profile project that were produced by some collaborators. And I admit, I couldn't make heads or tails out of some of that code. I'm just keeping it real, folks. I'm just telling it like it is. And I remember very well, I had to like highlight certain portions and figure out, oh wait, they're taking that coding dictionary. They're they're taking this subset of the trial data and such and such. And I, oh, the manual effort it took to figure out just what was happening. If I run all that through this little ad in here, oh, my life becomes so much easier. I could then see that it's snip, the snippet of the data at each time and perhaps even lead to ways I could improve the code once I figure out what exactly is going on. Now, that's a little bit of an extreme example, but I must say that this add-in, this package is going to save me a bunch of time from doing my, I might call infamous trick of like saving four or five different objects based on each step of the pipeline and trying to inspect them differently side by side. Well, now, like you said, the, 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 the preview of the data is right below and I can toggle on and off the different steps. Like what a great way to understand what went wrong. But honestly, this is also a wonderful teaching device too. imagine a student just getting to know the tidyverse or the pipe like syntax. And they're wondering just what does it all mean in a concrete example? Now you can dive into it visually and find out. So I think from an education perspective, that makes a ton of sense. And I shouldn't be surprised about that because the author of this, I'm going to hopefully get this right, uh, Nishal Shresha, apologies in advance if I didn't get it right, but he's a data science educator at our studio. So I could see this playing a valuable role in maybe some of the future courses that they develop. So I think on both avenues, it's going to be in my toolbox for the future. Absolutely. It seems like a good complement to the, the static uh, complement might be what we have now in Cordo with code highlighting, right? Oh, Where you yes. could highlight one row at a time and, and show the output. I've seen a lot of educational Cordo slide decks that, that do that to try to articulate what's going on in a particular step in like an ETL pipeline um, with the tidyverse. So uh, I think that coupled with this are, are phenomenal tools for anybody out there who, who's educating others uh, in the R, especially deep liar, tidy R space. Yeah, and even the little visual cues at each step saying like what type of change it is, whether it's a change to the actual data being produced or more of an internal change to how R is thinking about that that maybe Tibble or other object that is piping through. Again, great, 
great way to visualize just what is impacting where. Um, really could not say enough good things about it. And this show did give, a, I think, a short lightning talk at this at a conference a year ago that we'll link to in the show notes if you want a quick video recap of what Unravel is all about. But yeah, really enjoyed playing with this. And like I said, it's going to be in my toolbox for the future. So speaking of visualizing changes. Ooh, I don't know if that was as good as the last segue, but I'll go with it. Um, pretty good. Pretty, okay. I, I, I tried to think about my segue game here, here and there. But uh, you've been hard at work recently, and I'm thrilled to say in our last highlight, we're going to talk about some really innovative work that you've partnered with for some fun research into environmental change agents on various species in Canada. Well, that's a mouthful, but <laughs> take us into just what this project was about and how uh, Shiny played a huge role here. Yeah, I don't know how this one ended up on the highlights, but uh, I could say that it was not it was not an inside job by Catchbrook. Let's put it that way. It might have been a slightly <laughs> our weekly highlights podcast inside job, but um <laughs> so we we uh, at catchbrook analytics wrote a nice blog wrapping around a production grade shiny app that we developed uh for canada's government essentially the, their western boreal forests and they wanted to they, they had already done a, a pretty big quantitative project um, which involved the development of a bunch of r packages sort of working in tandem together really really cool stuff um, of sort of simulating these environmental change agents, which could be things like wildfires, uh, pests, or, or climate change on, on the populations of, of certain species. And in particular, you know, when we were getting started, we were just using uh, birds, so a bunch of different bird species that we were visualizing these simulations on, as well as a bunch of different types of trees. And we built out a pretty cool, if, if I may say so myself, with uh, the help of the team at Analithium. Shout out Peter Salamos uh, and, and his team. But uh, we, we built out a, a really cool Gollum uh, Shiny app, our package, which uh, has a bunch of different visual visualization screens, two really big full screen uh, leaflet maps. Um, that one has some really cool functionality that maybe we'll get to in a second that allows you to compare uh, two simulations just by sort of dragging this slider across the page. And maybe you can do a, be a better job again of articulating data visualization uh, on a podcast for me that, that, than I can, Eric. But anyways, the app is uh, freely available if you want to take a look at what is up there. Um, just check out the highlights, check out our blog post. And there's a link in the blog post that'll take you right to that web application, as well as a lot of the background context of, of how this project came together. But I, I appreciate, appreciate the highlight. I've been playing with this ever since I saw the blog post come through. And first, you know, huge credit to how responsive this thing is. Like I, I remember in the old days of Shiny when we would do even moderately complex maps that it would be kind of a chore to load the tiles back and forth, but this is silky smooth. So whatever performance optimizations you made, you know, bang up job on that. Really, really nice work. Pre-rendering. <laughs> but Pre -rendering. hey, hey yep. that may be a lesson sometimes we have to learn the hard way. The more you can pre-render, the more smoother user experience it is. So 
Yeah, I, I really enjoy that inter the side-by-side -side interface you mentioned so you can quickly see the impact of these different simulations in a very intuitive way. Um, you got also some nice little intuitive tables and many maps on the rest of the pages for specific species like birds and, and caribou and the like. And it looks like there may be more coming soon, but yeah, really, really um, slick visualizations there as well. And as somebody who actually a lot of my day job is trying to put a good visual or tabular summary across very complex simulation results, this technique, if you can, you know, be proficient in how you distill down what could be thousands of observations or thousands of records into an intuitive UI, that can speed up decision making so much, so much faster. So I, I live this life, so I can definitely appreciate it. And even some of the things I'm trying to tackle are trying to put it all in the end to end package where maybe the analyst can actually do the simulations in the app and then visualize it. Not saying you have to do that, but that is something I'm expected to do. So I'm, I'm looking at all the ways of eking out performance and still getting that intuitive look and feel for um, analyzing these results. But this definitely looks like something that can be a, a huge impact to these environmental investigations. So really credit to you and the rest of your team on, on making this happen. Thank you very much. Yeah, we're, we're very excited for the impact that I think it's already having um, up in Canada. And, and yes, in terms of performance, I think that the two big two big things here, especially when you're working with GIS data, which can be very heavy, um, two big things were, were pre-rendering of those tiles, uh, which were stored in a database. So we could just grab the tile um, that was already drawn, overlay it right on the map from that database once the user made their selections. And the other thing was the use of, I'll shout it out, a leaflet proxy R package um, to ensure that like the entire map is not getting redrawn every time a widget or an input changes, which can be a, a hurdle that I've had to face in the past as maybe others who've used leaflet and our mapping capabilities have, have had to hurdle as well. So that's a, a little tip for the audience out there making their leaflet maps. And you even gave that tip to me as I was asking you for some help from another colleague on how to speed up the rendering process. So that's another tip that I could do a whole Shiny Dev Series episode about is taking advantage of these client-side updates, these proxy updates to speed up the user experience. So yeah, great to see you pay that forward and the work you do, but also helping a few of us in the community still stumbling our way through some of that. So very nicely done. Thank you very much. But of course, we can't stop there. There's a whole bunch in the rest of this issue. I had a tons of tons of fun curating this. There's a whole bunch of package updates, some really neat ones that caught my eye. So in the, our weekly post, you'll see some cool interact, well, uh, GIF-like visuals on various things that we didn't touch on today. But I will plug a couple things, and then I'll ask Mike for his. But first, I want to plug an, an event coming up in early November that I've been a part of for since the outset. And that is the 2022 R and Pharma Conference. It will be virtual again this year, but that's where if you're involved in life sciences or health uh, analysis in any way, shape or form, it is completely free to register. And we talk shop about all the great things that R is able to let us do from an analysis standpoint on whether it's experiment design, target identification, or trying to distill voluminous outputs into an easily digestible way. So. 
definitely check that out. That's rnpharma.com if you're interested. And speaking of shiny, well, Colin Faye's at it again. He's made a new package called Elvis. So again, awesome name. I'm sorry, neck and neck with Mario Box in terms of naming. But check that package out if you want an, an easier way to handle errors in your typical renders or observers that you're building in your app. So I'm going to play with it. I haven't played with it yet, but that could go a long way in making sure the whole experience doesn't come crashing down like a house of cards that's been knocked over. If you have any little error, whether it's in your data set processing or maybe some other munging and you want to still keep the app going, but still figure out just what happened. So definitely check out Elvis. It's early days, but as we said before, anything that's early days from Colin means I'm installing it when I get a chance. Ha <laughs> ha. So uh, yes. my, Mike, what did you find today? I did find that Elvis and I was trying again because I was so mad at myself for not getting the Mario box reference. <laughs> I was trying to figure out why the heck did he name this package Elvis? And he, he says you are T rying to render try render tender he he sort of nixes letters around to try to get to the word tender and then he says and love me tender love me true which is an elvis line so i think there's a lot of gymnastics there and i'm not too mad that i didn't <laughs> not too mad that i didn't get this one so we'll yeah. see about we'll see about next time colin <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the uh the the highlight that i wanted to touch on as well was a blog post called housing markets down hierarchical time series. And then this was written by Selcuk Dissi, who I believe is in Turkey, um, who like in the US uh, over there in Turkey, housing and rent prices have been way up for a while. And it sounds like some folks are saying that that is about to come to an end and turn around. So he wanted to do a little bit of forecasting in R to see if he could prove that argument true, that housing prices uh, might be coming down um, and he built a beautiful hierarchical uh, time series model, which is, speaks to me a little bit because I've been getting asked quite a bit lately to do some uh, real estate forecasting work, which I probably should just not do because <laughs> who knows who knows what the heck the housing market is going to do. So I'm going to have a gigantic confidence interval on any model that I built, but uh, I'm definitely going to leverage a lot of the R code that he has in this blog post as well for creating these hierarchical time series based upon different geographic divisions as well. So one to check out if you're into that kind of thing. Nice. Yeah, I enjoy reading that as well. And of course, you'll find links to that and everything else we talked about at rweekly.org. Yep, another fantastic issue. And so I pass the baton to another curator for next week and I'll probably get back in that around the end of the year. But as always, I always enjoy being part of the part of the effort. And if you want to be a part of the effort, just please get in touch with us. All the information is at rweekly.org. You can also contribute via poll requests to our upcoming issue. It's all marked down, very easy and straightforward to get set up. Our curator of the week will be glad to merge that in. Um, and feel free to plug away a cool blog post, a new R package, a new uh, paper coming out. You know, we we take everything. So. I always appreciate all of your contributions in the community. And also, I always appreciate following my co-hosts on social media. So, Mike, where can people follow you online? Sure. I'm at 
Twitter at Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K. Awesome. I am at the RCast and lately I've just been finding some great content to just share along with the rest of the community, but there are lots of cool stuff happening. Hopefully I can give some updates on my adventures very soon, but yeah, October is going to be a, a busy, but hopefully a very productive month with some new efforts going forward. So, wow, we've been busy today, but we're going to close up shop here. Another great episode of our weekly is in the books. So as always, thank you, Mike, for joining me on this journey. It's always so much fun to do this with a with another co-host instead of just solo me like it was in the old days. <laughs> just as fun for me. Very nice. And hopefully it was fun for all of you listening. Uh, don't hesitate to get in touch with us if you have feedback on the show or like the, us to focus on additional things. We're always happy to take that. But we'll wrap it up here and we'll be back with another edition of our weekly highlights next week.